the history of cannabis culture. One artifact and interview at a time. This is Canthropology. Presented by the World of Cannabis Museum Project. With your host, World of Cannabis Executive Director, Bobby Black. What's up, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Canthropology, the podcast that explores the history of cannabis culture, one artifact and interview at a time. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. You know, when we talk about the great icons of cannabis culture, few are more universally recognized or revered as the legendary comedy duo of Cheech and Chong. From their humble origins as an improv act at a Vancouver strip club in the late 1960s, Richard Cheech Marin and Thomas Chong rose to counterculture stardom in the 1970s and early 80s with a string of gold and Grammy-winning comedy albums followed by a series of hilarious films featuring characters that were laughable yet lovable exaggerations of stoner stereotypes. Sadly, in 1985, after nearly 20 years of entertaining audiences, the pair reached a creative impasse and decided to part ways. As a solo artist, Cheech transcended typecasting, appearing in dozens of films and television shows, including Born in East LA, which he wrote and directed, and the popular program Nash Bridges, as well as countless cameos and voiceover roles, including several animated Disney characters. Then in 2012, to the delight of their fans, Cheech and Chong announced that they were reunited. They've since done several live comedy tours and an animated film together and have launched their own cannabis brands, further solidifying their status as reefer royalty. But Cheech isn't just an icon in the worlds of cannabis and entertainment. He's also an icon in the Mexican-American community. Cheech has dedicated much of his life to illuminating and elevating Chicano culture and has spent decades amassing one of the most impressive collections of Latino art in the world. Now he's sharing that collection with the world via a sensational new museum bearing his name that opens its doors in Riverside, California on June 18th. I am incredibly honored to welcome to the show Actor, director, writer, musician, art collector, humanitarian, and cannabis comedy legend, Mr. Cheech Marin. Mr. Marin, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. Thank you. I'm, I'm a pl- it's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? Good, good. And may I call you Cheech? May you I may. That? All right. Thank you, sir. You um, may call me Cheech. <laughs> all right. Um, well, I don't know if you'll recall this, but I once had the pleasure of uh, interviewing you and Tommy for about five minutes on the green carpet outside the High Times Stony Awards in Hollywood back in 2010. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was the senior that. editor at High Times for many years, and I consider that to be one of my highlights of my career. So, uh, <laughs> you should get out more. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, anyway, I'm very grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you again, this time in a little more depth. Thank you. Um, my pleasure. So um, you have some very exciting projects happening right now uh, that I'm looking forward to talking to you about. But before we get to that, uh, since this is a cannabis history podcast, I'd like to start off with a brief flashback, if you will, to discuss uh, your career, your impact on our culture and whatnot, if that's OK with you. Why not? So uh, first things first, uh, tell us a little about when you originally got turned on to marijuana. How old were you? What were the circumstances? I was, I think, 19 and I was a freshman in college. 
and I, and I had some roommates in an apartment they were staying in. And uh, I came home one night and there was a party going on in the apartment. And I was, oh, okay, there was always parties going on in my apartment. And so I was standing there against the wall. And all of a sudden, my, my roommate passed this cigarette thing to me. I said, well, what's this? So I said, it's, it's weed. I mean, I said, it's a, I can't remember what he called it. I said, he says, marijuana. Uh, oh, okay. Well, so what do I do? Well, just smoke it. Okay. And it smoked and turned and then it, passed around, you know, and then by the time it came back, I was high <laughs> and, and everything was going slower and everything was mellow and the, and the music sounded better, you know? And so as, from that day forward, I was like, oh, what else they've been lying about? <laughs> so, so would, would, is it fair to say that marijuana changed your life? <laughs> I would say. I would think so. Yeah. You know, I was kind of, I was fairly straight at that time. I mean, I was rambunctious, but I mean, I was an altar boy, choir boy, member of the, of the religious societies and all that. And, and this is, and it didn't detract from everything. It just made everything slower and easier, easier to comprehend and look at from a bunch of different angles. I said, well, this, this pop stuff is not bad. You know? <laughs> so um, in the late 60s, you became active in the anti-war movement uh, and yeah. ended up moving to Vancouver, Canada to avoid the draft to Vietnam. Is that right? Well, you know, half that has half right. I was part of the draft resistance movement headed by David Harris and our group. Uh, we wanted to uh, adopt the universal soldier uh, stance in that we wouldn't participate in any war in these wars. And uh, and so we turned in our draft cards as a sign of protest. And then, then they were after us. Uh, the FBI was wanted. Uh, Hershey, who was a director of the draft at the time, issued this proclamation that anybody who protested at the draft board or turn their draft card in or burned it or whatever, uh, would be immediately reclassified 1A, uh, drafted and sent to the front lines of Vietnam. That was his fix. So, hmm, that seems to be a First Amendment issue, Mr. Hershey Bar. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so we, we knew it would get overturned, but it was going to take a number of years to do that. And then you're going to spend the, that time in Leavenworth uh, prison. I said, yeah. you know. I said, uh, basically, uh, Mr. Hirschhout, fuck you. And, uh, and but at the same time, I was uh, 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 my last semester in college and I took this pottery class just out of on a whim. Changed that changed my life. That really changed my life. And from there, I was going to be a potter that they consumed all my waking hours and I made pottery all day. You know? wow. And so uh, my pottery teacher who was aware of my predicament, I says, well, I have this ex-student who's opening a pottery in Canada. Maybe he needs a, an assistant. So that's, ah. I was on the dog the next day. So it was two things that combined in one, you know. Gotcha. I wasn't drafted when I when I left, but as I stayed there longer, which actually all-inclusive all uh, uh, in Canada was three years. But at the end of the, or the beginning of the second year, that's when I moved to Vancouver and met Tommy Chong. Of course. And that's where we got together. And then, as they say, the rest is history. The rest is history. Um, so that was about, I guess, what, 67-ish, somewhere around there? No, it was 69. 69. Probably. 69, yeah. 70, right around there, yeah. So can you brief, briefly explain us how your friendship uh, and partnership developed? Uh, well, you know, he was running this uh, uh, improvisational theater uh, club in a, in a topless club in Vancouver. You know, it was a family-owned topless club uh, during his his his, depart his, his uh, time in because he was with Motown. He was a, 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 a in a band with Motown, 
And when he came back, his family had turned it into Vancouver's first topless club. But he had seen improv theater on the road, and that's what he wanted to do. Yeah. So he put together this look. But it was in a, in a tough topless bar in, in Chinatown in, in Vancouver. You know, it wasn't theater, but it was theater, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was theater. Yeah. And so uh, I I, uh, I was writing for a magazine up there, a rock and roll magazine called Poppin'. Cool. And the, the publisher of it, uh, uh, Ihor Tadaruk, he's Ukrainian. And he, uh, he says, I, I got this guy, Tommy, he says to Tommy, I got this guy you should meet because he knew me. And then he said to me the same thing. I got this guy you should meet. He's doing some weird stuff. Met up. And uh, the first thing we, we thought we, we saw each other is, what is this guy? What are you? Are you a hun or you look like a Mongol biker or you didn't know what I was, Filipino, Mexican. And, and so we, 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 he invited me to join the, the, the troupe as a writer. I started writing for the group and eventually I started doing all the parts. And when the troupe fell apart, which all troops do, uh, Tommy and I stayed together. And you guys developed your infamous stoner characters during that time. Yeah. And then uh, after a year or two of honing your act, you eventually signed a record deal uh, yeah. with Blue Adler yeah. and released a string of comedy albums throughout the 70s. Yeah. Uh, six of those went gold, one of which won you a Grammy. Yes. And uh, the most famous of those is probably Big Bamboo, which became the best-selling comedy album in history at the time. At the time. And the sleeve was brilliantly designed to look like a huge pack of rolling papers and even came with a giant rolling paper inside. Giant? Rolling paper. Whose idea was that? That was a, a guy named Craig Braun who uh, had this graphics company and made uh, albums, you know, and, and the package. He made all the like the the Sticky Fingers Rolling Stone album oh, with the, the zipper, zipper yeah. in the front. Yeah, yeah. Uh, made a bunch of different ones, and he, he came to Lou, I think, with this idea. Hey, this is a great idea, and Lou went for it, and. And, and that sold more than any other record. I mean, just, to, you know, because of that packaging that was like that. You know, so we were very grateful and everybody caught on to it. And, yeah. and that went to be a number one hit album, too. So I'm guessing at some point during the after that was released, you guys actually rolled a joint with that giant rolling paper and smoked it. I hope number of point. times, <laughs> numerous <laughs> times, we'd meet kids on the road and they had done that. And we were saving it for you. Okay. Yeah, I bet they were. Hey, you want to get high, man? Does Howdy Doody got wooden balls, man? I got a joint here, man. I've been saying for a special occasion. Fire up. My temperature rise. And... Is that a joint, man? God damn, it looks like a, yeah, a quarter pounder, man. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you guys put out all these great albums. And then in 1978, you make your big first foray into cinema when you start in your debut feature film, the comedy classic Up in Smoke. Yeah. Um, is it true that most of the or much of the dialogue in that movie was improvised? And generally speaking, how much in your films would you say was improvised? Uh, you know, a lot of as it as as all as it. We got increasingly into the film catalog. A lot of it, more more of it was improvised. But the first album or the first movie was we took chunks of what we were doing before and tried to fit it into some kind of narrative. You know, the narrative was two guys meet. They want to form a band, but first they have to get a joint. And that's what, that's what, that's a, therein lies your plot for Up in Smoke. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, things happen along the plot line. 
And so, uh, but uh, but we wrote, I mean, we wrote, you know, we, the thing is that everybody kind of thinks that we didn't write anything down. We wrote stuff down. It's just that we were making the movie for ourselves. You know, we weren't writing a script and giving it somebody, giving it to somebody else to interpret. We knew what we were doing. So we didn't, okay, let's do that bit about blah, blah, blah. We didn't need to write it down. We knew what the blah, blah, blah was. Sure, sure. So uh, I know that you guys said that you didn't really get high during filming because you wanted to bring your best to the work. But I can I imagine you must have had some pretty stony times after the camera stopped rolling. Oh, are, you, sure. are there any particularly memorable off camera drug <laughs> adventures you'd be willing to share with us today? Well, none that I can repeat for a G- <laughs> PG audience. Uh, this is not a PG audience. You know, no, we had a lot of fun, you know, because we were, we were young and uh, yada, yada. And uh, no, we had a lot of fun, but uh, but we were always from from that day forward after we stopped making started making movies we were on in a combination of uh making a movie or on the road doing our concert trip and so we didn't have time to think about the, the you know the ramifications of what we were doing you know we'd be on the yeah. road oh you just got nominated for a grammy good that's uh, what does that have to do with being in toledo or like that? you know yeah and uh we just kind of we didn't stop to think what we had done till a long time into the process yeah so you guys went on to make a total of six feature films together if i'm not mistaken all of which became instant classics yeah. um including still smoking which you shot in amsterdam yeah and nice dreams which featured an appearance by lsd guru timothy leary our buddy what was he like and did you guys trip with him while he was around yeah uh, sure <laughs> uh, the, uh, timmy was like one of our best friends and he was he was uh, he was like an irish pub rabble psychedelic irish pub rabble rouser you know and he was incredibly intelligent and, and learned. He was a professor at Harvard and well, well, well regarded. Uh, uh, I don't know what field he's in. He's in psychology or I can't remember what the field he was in, but he wrote 26 books, yeah. you know, and was also in 26 prisons. You know, so <laughs> I, I don't know anybody who has that on their resume. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was, he was the greatest guy. We spent a lot of time when he used to come over our house and stay my house anyways, and stay and, and be, and he knew a lot about astronomy and he would point out the stars and the constellations to us. He was the most fun guy you could ever meet. Hey, please, Doc, get me out of here. Let me be free. I just, I just want the key, okay? You want the key? <laughs> Stick out your tongue. <laughs> That's the key to the universe. <laughs> hey, man. Hey, I got the key, man. So I have a hard question for you. Uh, if you had to pick a favorite movie of your Cheech and Chong films, what would it be and why? I, you know, probably up in smoke because it encompassed a lot of years of what we were doing before some of the bits, but it was also our first movie, you know, that any, and anytime you make your first movie, it's really special. And it was also very good. It was a big hit and, uh, and, and it went worldwide. So, you know, and the other ones came along after it and did very well, but uh, the first one, it's always, it's like your first love. Yeah. So um, eventually that that honeymoon, that first love uh, began to sour. And uh, much uh-huh. like Lennon and McCartney, 
another pair of geniuses, uh, you and Chang eventually faced some creative differences, as they say, I guess, yeah. and chose to part ways in, in around 1985. Yeah. Did you guys stay in touch? Did you stay friends afterwards? Or did you kind of cut off ties and go separate ways? Well, you know, it was intermittent at that time, you know, because there was a lot of, you know, bad feelings on both our parts, you know, because I, 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 we split up for reasons. And, uh, and I'd call him every once in a while, he'd call me or something, you know, we'd talk and, and then we'd keep on our own path. But I always knew that we'd get back together in some form because the connection was just too strong and the people wanted it so much, you know? So and finally we waited a bunch of years until we got this great offer to go back on the road again. And, and it was really intriguing to me or, or, or alluring to me is because that's the thing we argued about the least, the, the live show, you know, it's because you go out there, you tell a joke, they laugh. It's funny. They don't laugh. It's not funny. No matter what you want to think, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so there was no arguing about, well, this is, this will be conceptually better. You know, tell your joke and see if they laugh. Yeah. And so, yeah. so we went back on the road and had a good time. Yeah. Who is it? Hey, man, it's Dave. Will you open up the door? I got Who? The... Dave, man, I got the stuff with me. Dave? Yeah, come on, man, it's cold Dave out here. Dave got here. Hey, man, I'm Dave. Hey, man. Hey, man, come on, open up the door. Well, you know, you. I don't want to totally glaze over your, your solo career because uh, after oh. you left Cheech and Chang, you certainly uh, starred in countless movies and TV roles, including Born in East L.A., which you wrote and directed. Uh, and of course, Nash Bridges, which was a very popular show that you were on for a very long time. Were you worried in the beginning that you might be typecast and not be offered any serious roles? Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, how do you become anything besides Cheech of Cheech and Chong when when you when you go out there? It's like, how do you be anything but share? You know, <laughs> so you have to redefine share. Share uh, does. Yeah, and I did, and that's kind of what I did. So I kept looking for, you know, what the anything that didn't have a big joint in it. I was, uh, you know, that was a possibility. But what really launched me in my own solo career was animation. Right, right, right. I came to Disney, came to me, and they offered me what's that? Oliver and Company was the very first one, you know, and then we then that went really well, and it was in the rise of Disney, re-rise of Disney animation. And then did the Lion King and Cars and a lot of other ones, you know, so that really yeah. got me out there. And then I started doing other movies and other TV shows. Yeah. Well, you have such a distinctive voice, of course. I mean, I could see why they would want you. Um, I got to say one of my favorite things you did, and it wasn't a TV or a movie. Well, it was a TV show, but... Uh, in 1992, you made potheads everywhere proud by defying stoner stereotypes and winning the Celebrity Jeopardy tournament. <laughs> I just think that was the best because people have all these conceptions about stoners being spacey and dumb, and you get up there and you school them, and I thought that was just fabulous, man. Oh, thank you very much. It's one of the highlights of my creative life. I mean, you know, it's like it's I, you can have all the PhDs you want, but you win Celebrity Jeopardy, man. You're the smartest motherfucker on the planet, you know. <laughs> Did you study for that or did you just roll in there like, I got this? Well, you know, there's two theories about that. There's one thing, that, one theory that you study everything you can, you know, presidents, historic dates, state capitals, all that, which I did. And there's another theory that study nothing because a lot of the categories you can't study for. Yeah. You know, words with three R's. 
potpourri, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, uh, all kinds of all stuff. kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, all kinds of crazy stuff yeah, that yeah, you yeah. can you can't study for. Yeah. You just got to know this. So as you mentioned, uh, you guys did finally get back together. I believe it was 2012. I was at High Times at the time, and I remember we put you guys back on the cover, and yeah. it was a big deal, and it was exciting. Um, it was for the Get It Legal tour when you guys went back on the road. What yeah. made you guys get back together at that point after so many years apart? Well, you know, we got a big offer to uh, by Live Nation that, that, that produced the show, or produced the tour. And it sounded like a good thing. We we're going to play really good halls. It would probably sell out all of them. And and uh, it was a nice way to to get back with Tommy in, in a format that we didn't argue about, you know, because uh, uh, it's like I said, they laugh or they don't laugh, you know. And then and it was amazing that that was such a part of our DNA when he kind of mentioned to us uh, when we, this thing was starting to bubble and he said uh, you know when well, i'm doing this gig with my wife shelby down in san diego at uh, the one of the comedy clubs a comedy store down there he says once you show up and we'll we come out of the audience hey i got a special guest and wow and here we are and that's what i did and we had no i swear to god this is the truth we had no rehearsal whatsoever whatsoever we just kind of went over the bit a little bit in our heads. And we went, okay, remember you? And then after all those years of being apart, we walked up on the stage and like we had performed the day crowd before. crowd must have gone insane. They I mean, went like, nuts. Totally <laughs> insane. <laughs> they went nuts. Oh, man. I would, what I would give to be at that first uh, impromptu was, show, man. Yeah, That was the cool um, deal, man. So you guys were originally planning to star in a reunion film together, like like a grumpy old stoner kind of concept film. Um, but that never seemed to materialize. Why is that? You know, there was a, there was a disagreement between Tommy and I about uh, who did what, you know, and he he insisted that he was going to be the director and writer. And I guess I was supposed to you know, say the punchlines or something. So we had to uh, we had a lot, lot of arguments over that, you know, and that eventually broke us up again. So I kind of. You know, and so I, you know, it's, I, it's so, so we don't have much hope for a, for a one more live action film together, or what? I, do you think? I don't think so. You know, I don't okay. think so. I think we're older, and you know, health issues intrude uh, to yeah. go on, on the road. But I would make a movie again. But I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I wouldn't. Maybe I wouldn't make any movie again. It would. It would be epic if you guys did. That's all I'll yeah. say. I, I, you know, I know it's. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, factors involved. But um, yeah. All right, well, we need to pause for a quick commercial break, but please don't go away because we'll be right back with more from cannabis comedy legend Cheech Marin here on Canthropology. I was born in East LA, man, I was born in East LA. Oh yeah, you're born in East LA. Well, let's see your green card, huh? Green card? I'm from East LA. All right, and welcome back to Canthropology, everyone. Our guest this episode is none other than cannabis comedy legend himself, Mr. Cheech Marin. Cheech, in addition to being an entertainment and a cannabis icon, you're also an icon in the Mexican-American community. Um, and and I, so I'd like to shift gears a little bit sure. and talk a little about uh, so a little bit more serious stuff. So. Of course, you know the word marijuana itself originated in Mexico as a sort of a slang term for cannabis. Yeah. Um, do you know much about how the word originated and why it was used? Uh, it, it was used to uh, denigrate it and, and so give it this Mexican 
overview or hue so that it, they and the police could use that as an excuse, you know, to stop Mexicans and see if they had any marijuana on them. Well, that was how the that's how the Americans use it. That's how Harry Anslinger used it and the yellow journalist. But I mean, in Mexico, well, in it Mexico, wasn't a bad word there for them, right? No, it was a salve. You know, they made salve out of marijuana. They boiled it down. And just like you have CBD right now. That's what Mexicans were using for all kinds of ailments, you know, to, to rub on their skin and make it hurt less. Yeah. So from the very beginning, it's always been a medicine. Yeah. You know, and then, like you said, the 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 powers that be who were who were racist against Mexicans or who had other agendas. Yeah. Use that word to, to separate it from cannabis. They didn't want to call it hemp or cannabis. Yeah. And they wanted to scare white America into, mm-hmm. you know, being afraid of it. Um, and now there's actually some like woke minded people these days that are claiming that the word marijuana itself is a racist term and should be canceled and that we shouldn't use it anymore. It should only be called cannabis from now on. I so know. I wanted to ask you, as as the world's most famous <laughs> and beloved Chicano pothead, uh, I'd really like to get your take on this topic. How do you feel about the word marijuana? Do you think it, do you have a positive, negative? Do you think it should be used or shouldn't be used? For me, it's a totally positive word. I mean, the fact that it's Spanish means more to me um, as as an entree point. Uh, but uh, you know, I don't, I don't I don't really kind of subscribe to that argument. You can argue about it all you want, but marijuana, cannabis, it doesn't matter to me. It's fine. Marijuana, as it was also, you know, used to denigrate jazz musicians and black guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sure but was, yeah. only they, they, their Mexicans smoke this shit, you know. Yeah. So um, we should also note that uh, as the, the vast majority of people arrested and imprisoned during the drug war on drugs have been people of color, a large portion of which have been yeah. obviously Mexicans and Latinos. Um, but now, yeah. as cannabis legalization slowly progresses, some states are trying to help rectify that past uh, injustice by enacting social equity programs that ensure that people of color are given a fair chance at getting licenses and opportunities in the cannabis mm-hmm. space. And thankfully, we're seeing more and more Chicano and Latino owned cannabis businesses opening and succeeding. What's your assessment yeah. of like where things are in terms of social equity in Hispanic and Chicano? I think it's I think it's wide open right now. I mean, I think it's wide open. Anybody who uh, cares to join, it seems, it depends on what state states you're in because that's the problem. Yeah, uh, uh, can is, is you know free to, if they get licensed. It depends on what state they're in and who controls that state. And you know, sure. So the the big uh, uh, answer is to make it legal federally. And that wipes out a whole bunch of problems. You know? sure. uh, I mean, and name a subject in, in that category, and it's affected by not being nationally legal. Yeah, of course. So we have to de- get it descheduled, take it off schedule one, and legalize it. Get it legal, as you said. <laughs> well, we got to legalize it. You know, you know? I, mean, I mean, when you have 39 states that have some form of legalized marijuana, whether it be medical or recreational, how is it? 39 out of 50 states how is that not legal yeah yeah it's crazy um so i'm wondering if if, are there any um chicano owned cannabis businesses or organizations that you've been involved in supporting uh organizations i like uh uh, now and uh what was that marijuana prisoner project yeah yeah we've been supporting that a lot you know there's some guy still in jail for having a joint you know (laughs) Uh, it's a, it's ridiculous. It was it was a, a, a way to kind of suppress that that community, yeah. and you know, so and they're still trying to. But but <laughs> there's no segment of society right now that marijuana does not enter. None. 
I don't care what segment of society you're talking about. If you're the uh, the uh, three percenters or those kind of guys, marijuana for sure. <laughs> and if you're a policeman, blot. Yeah, you know, sure. smoking one. You know, yeah. So uh, there's no no segment of society that doesn't enter. So it affects the whole country. So speaking of Chicano-owned cannabis brands, we should mention, of course, that in 2018 you launched your own cannabis brand, Chicha's Stash. Yeah. How's that been going? It's been going very well. You know, we got everybody in the family working on it. My my son and daughter both worked for the company and in, in, in uh, all kinds of areas. And my my daughter, who's a, a graduate of the uh, Institute of Chicago Institute of Art Institute of Chicago. Um, one of the most prestigious art schools in the country. She handles all our graphics and social media. And my son is, is heavily involved in sales and, uh, uh, and, and, and quality control. Let's put it that way, quality <laughs> control. So they, so they work for me and they, you know, the, the brand is doing very well, man, you know, and it's hard to make a celebrity brand go because I, you know, because it, everybody has like, this is like Elvis wine or something, you know, and that, no. Well, if anybody has enough cred to put out a weed brand, it should be you. Well, it, you, if it's good. Yeah. If it's yeah. good, because everybody's going to catch on real quick if it's not. Yeah. And so yeah. our, our theme, our, our, our motto was, it will always be good. No matter oh. what. I mean, I'd always be the same, because it's not just one strand that we've grown. In, sure. you know, but it will always be good, no matter what strain. Uh, it has our name on it. It will always be good. So how hands-on are you? Do you actually pick and test the strains or? or I do. Yeah. I do. My, my son, Joey, finds the strains and brings them to us. And we, there's a small little group of panel uh, uh, that, uh, that verifies them or tests them. And, and if, and if we don't like them, they don't go on. You know? I'm curious, have you ever tried to grow weed on your own yourself? And how did that go? Were you any good at it? You know, the the less I did, the better it got. <laughs> a friend of mine who will go nameless, although his name is Jen Michael Minson, uh, he was a, he was a, an actor, a really good friend yeah. of mine. And one day he came and he says, "Hey, I'm growing a bunch of plants here, and I'm going to give you a couple." Oh, okay, great. And I just where should I put them? Just put them over there by those bushes over there. And then I went out on tour. And so when I came back, there's these Christmas trees that had grown <laughs> through the bottom of the pot and they were huge and big giant colas like that long on them. And wow. like, holy. So how do we, and it was just, it coincided with the event of the seal meal. There was this thing called the seal meal. You could vacuum seal all your food. Should work for marijuana. And so we got all the biggest bugs and we vacuum sealed them. And it had, we had great weed for a long time. That's awesome. Uh, so in addition to Cheech's stash, uh, I know that you and Tommy recently launched another new cannabis brand like together. Is that right? Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Cheech and Chong. And I, I, there's a lot of value in being together rather than being apart. But we still have our own separate lines that we do well with. Um um, Cheech and Chong seemed like a natural fit, and there was a company that thought so and put the money behind it. And so we, uh, the original uh, uh, intention was to to buy uh, dispensaries and turn them into Cheech and Chong dispensaries. It doesn't seem like such a viable thing now because you don't really need dispensaries. <laughs> For, for for a a lot of in a lot of cases, you know, and and that's a real big overhead. It's you know bro, bricks and mortar in, in the in the marijuana worlds. 
So we decided just to, to do our brands, sell them to everybody and increase the presence of our bands. Cool. Do you still get high pretty often? And, uh, you know, if so, how do you prefer, what's your preferred method? Oh, pretty often define that like every minute, <laughs> not every minute, but, <laughs> but sometimes every day, you know, yeah. all day, you know, and then, I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a flower guy, man. I like, I like a pipe and flower and, Away you go, but I'm getting to to like edibles more. What have you ever done a dab? <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, you like dabs at all? I do very much. Uh, what it what it was is how I got introduced is that I had the, my second knee replacement uh, just a little while you know, about a year ago. No, no more than that, and, and and maybe two. Yeah. And then it was the second one. The first one, I was prescribed these opioids to, you know, ease the, you know, guard the pain and the rehabilitation. And that was a long journey. And I got kind of hooked on opioids at the oh, bed wow. at the end. And it was, and then at the end, it wasn't working, no matter how many you took. And, uh, and then it's, it's got very depressing because the pain was still there and nothing I was doing was. And then one day after six months, it stopped. So I waited 10 years be, before the next uh, knee operation because I didn't want to go through that again because it was not good. And so I said, well, I got to do it because I need a new knee. And so I said, but I'm not going to do it that way. And I, I, that's where I found dabs. You know, uh, a buddy of mine induced me to dabs. I says, this will help ease that pain. So I did it. And it was unbelievable. You know, I mean, you got you got high, but you it was a body high, you know, it kind of invaded your whole body. So the pain got the edge taken off of it. Yeah. You know, it just like felt like pressure, not pain. Yeah. And uh, and so I would do that. And then it was two months. The rehabilitation was two months and I was ready to go. Could walk, could run, could do anything. Wow. That's awesome. Do you ever miss the old strains from back in the 70s? Uh, what what's. What, how would you compare the new the new weed? I know it's more potent now, but how would you compare yeah. the old weed and the new weed? From the well, the, well the, the new weed doesn't pop your eye out if a seed explodes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, because you always had to watch for that, man. You know, oh, jeez, almost got me, you know, because it was Mexican weed, man. They just, you know, chopped it down and bundled it up. Yeah. What would you say if you could think of the highest you ever got? Was there a time when you got so high where you were just like, completely separated like lost it i don't think so you know i just get happy on weed you know because mostly right nowadays i use it when i'm playing i play guitar every day so wow. oh it's me time play guitar and just get lost in that experience and that's a lot of fun for me yeah that's really fun um speaking of artistic pursuits uh let's shift gears once again because i would like to uh shift away from cannabis for a moment and talk about one of your other great passions which is art uh, uh -huh. Over the past few decades, you've amassed one of the most impressive collections of Chicano art in the world. Uh, tell us a little about how you started collecting and, and, and how all that came about. Well, I was always interested in art from a very early age because I had this group of cousins, Chicano cousins, were very bright. And uh, they, the head cousins started assigning us topics to go out and find out about and bring back to the group. And I got assigned art. So how do you do that? I went to the library and looked got all the art books and then kind of, oh, that's what Picasso looks like. That's what Michelangelo and Da Vinci and Miro. And I learned about Western art that way and other arts. So it's kind of, you know, I was always a collector of something all my life, whether it was baseball cards or, you know. Uh, I'm a collector too. I have a lot of stuff. I have a lot of stuff. You are? There yeah. you go. 
It is, it is a mania, yeah. you know, and you have to kind of admit it. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, and so I knew about art and also I used to go to museums a lot from that day forward because you have to see paintings in person in order to really get yeah. the full value. Just, um, you know. Anyway, so I started doing that. And so when I had enough money, all of a sudden with the, uh, with the success of Chich and Chong, I could actually afford to buy art. And that's when I dis- I discovered the Chicano painters, and they they'd already been discovered before, and they were out there, they've done shows. But I discovered, and I said, "Well, I I see where these guys, what their influences are. They're all international art and Mexican culture, and and their neighborhoods, and like, wow, how come they're not being shown? Why aren't why aren't they getting any shelf space in in the museums and their galleries? And well, they're not, you know. So I said, well, okay, well, I'm going to start collecting this." This art and that's the mania set in, you know. Yeah. And then it was just like one because all the masterpieces of uh, Chicano art were basically still out there for purchase. Wow. And so I was the right guy at the right place at the right time. And now that collection is going to be serving as the foundation of a new museum yes. in Riverside, California, which is uh, scheduled to open on June 18th called the Cheech Marin Center for Chicano Art, Culture, and Industry. <laughs> Or as or as the intimates like to call it, the the cheech. The cheech, yes, <laughs> the yes. Cheech. Um, so this has obviously been in the works for a long time. I bet you're very excited about it. Tell us all about how it came about, how it came together. I am yeah. so excited. I can't tell you. Uh, uh, I was doing a show, uh, part of the uh, the collection, uh, works on paper, and we were playing the San uh, the Riverside Museum there and uh, of the show. And it was the biggest show they ever had attendance wise. And it was uh, unbelievable. And so they had this building, which was the town library. It's a beautiful mid-century building. I mean, beautiful mid-century. And they had it, uh, uh, they were going to build a new library down the street, you know, Jetson's library, kind of like they're doing international. And uh, so they had to repurpose the building. And they had been down the road with like a children's museum or or some, some science museum or something. It didn't work out. And so the town manager watched the show he said and it was a big show coming up with this bad idea why don't we give the building to Cheech and and he'll house the collection there you know we'll have the collection and he'll have the building okay sounds good to me they came up with a proposition i didn't understand it at first i thought you want me to buy a museum oh i'm doing okay but i don't know if i'm doing museum okay you know and uh, no, no, we want to give you the building for the art collection. You give us the art collection, we'll give you the building and house it in forever. Okay, sounds good. That was five years ago. And now, uh, on June 18th, uh, the, the museum is going to open. And uh, it's spectacular. I mean, really is spectacular. I've been in a lot of museums in my life, and this one is spectacular because it just showcases that one collection. And I got wow. enough pieces that it, it, it'll take a long time to roll it out. Yeah. So what's what do you guys have planned for the big opening day? Is it like a party? What can people who are attending expect? Yeah. Well, you have to have a reservation to get in, you know, because of the COVID uh, deal. Yeah. And so uh, uh, we're going to have festivities. We're going to have a, a lowrider parade to come uh, come up oh, to the, awesome. to the, uh, uh, the front of the museum. And there's parties and there's three days of like festivities and stuff before we open. And uh, they can come in and expect to see a, a really unbelievable museum with no art that they have really generally not seen ever before because my mantra during those days was you can't love or hate chicano art unless you see it yeah. and that was always the experience well i didn't know about chicano art i didn't know if i like it but 
I like this. So, well, that's Chicano art. You like it then, you know, yeah. so that, that was how it worked. Well, I'm going to try to make it down if I'm able to. I hope I'm able to secure a slot. And uh, maybe if I make it down, I'll hopefully uh, get to see you in person and say hello. Um, to have I'm sure you. you're going to be there. <laughs> gonna be there. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, on a personal note, uh, I'm also the, the executive director of the World of Cannabis Museum Project. We're building a, trying to build a cannabis culture museum. Oh, uh, we have great. over 500 artifacts in our collection and we're looking for locations and, and things like that. And uh, we have a few items in our collection, uh, of course, dedicated to you. We have one of the original film reels of Things Are Tough All Over, the uh, old really? film reels. We oh, also really? have the original press kit for Up in Smoke, the one that, they, that Lou Adler's company sent out. Uh -huh. So we have some pretty interesting items in there cool. and a couple of other little, you know, little fun items. But, uh, you know, I hope someday we can we're able to, uh, uh, you know, work together and get maybe a couple of cool items from your collection in the museum when it. I it hope so too. I um, hope so too. I'm telling but, um, So what's next for you after this? I know, uh, I know that Woody Harrelson just opened a smoke lounge in West Hollywood. I know you said you're not going to be opening dispensaries, but maybe a Cheech and Chong smoke lounge in the future. Is that something? You never know. You know, I just finished working with Woody Harrelson on a picture oh, really? in December in, in Winnipeg. And, and we had a great time <laughs> and uh, he's an old buddy. I've done st other stuff with yeah. him too. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, if, if some uh, smoke lounge opens up and it makes sense and it's a good one, we'd be interested. Yeah. I, I think it seems like a no brainer for you guys to have your name on, on yeah. more, more things in the cannabis space, if not a dispensary, than a smoke lounge, yeah. a really cool smoke lounge with like a Cheech and Chong theme and, and yeah. decor would be really cool. I think when they get to Cheech and Chong condoms, maybe we've gone. Here <laughs> but then again, you know, you never know. Yeah, you never know. But uh, well, whatever you decide to do, uh, you will have the undying support of myself and millions of other fans uh, whose lives you've, en you've enriched with your humor and your talent and your magnanimous spirit. Um, so Cheech, uh, it's been such an honor to, and a thrill to have this time with you. Uh, thank you so My much pleasure. for talking to me today. I wish you Long life, continued success in all of your endeavors, be they cannabis related or otherwise. Take care, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I appreciate talking to you and hi to all your audience. See you next time. All right. See you at the museum. Okay. See you at the museum. That'd be good. All right. Take care, my friend. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Wow. That was a fun interview. You know, I got to say, for a counterculture and entertainment icon, Cheech seems like a pretty sweet down-to-earth guy. And that's gonna just about do it for this episode of Canthropology. To read our Canthropology blog or for more information on the World of Cannabis Museum project, please visit our website, worldofcannabis.museum. If you'd like to contact us, you can hit us up on social media or shoot us an email at canthropology at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this show, we invite you to go ahead and click that subscribe button, leave us a review, share it with your friends, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I'd like to send some quick love and thanks out to our great longtime media partners, Cannabis Radio, Hayes Radio, and Leaf Magazine. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this show, and I hope you'll join us again next time here on Canthropology. Until then, this is Bobby Black, and I am history. History.